Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Welcome to episode 11. I'm Cam Connor with my son Chris. So welcome back everyone and you're right we took a break last week and the funny thing is we didn't think anybody would notice that we skipped an episode because of the holidays but we're happy to see that people actually did miss some of our podcasts and contacted us to say where's the the next podcast. So Today's episode will be about my dad's time in the WHA, which was known as the NHL's Rival League, and we'll find out if it actually really was a true rival of the NHL. But before we get to today's topic, I wanted to thank everyone for their reviews on iTunes. We're noticing a lot of reviews, so thanks very much, and we read all the comments and definitely appreciate it. And we do have some questions, so I'll start with the first question which is one that I was going to ask you, Dad, but because somebody else did. Jeremy from Brooks, Alberta, asked about how did competing on Celebrity Wipeout happen, and can you talk a little bit about Wipeout? And I'm actually going to start because this was an instance of my sister and I dragging you into another thing that you didn't want to do, but then I think you had fun when she did it. We made you apply. We saw that they were looking for all types of people, and we set up a, a camera for you, sent in your videotape, just like everybody else. You got a phone call, so I'll let you take over from there. Well, you're right, Chris. This wasn't even on my radar, Wipeout Canada. You know, you got me uh, signed up for it, so I had to travel from Edmonton to Calgary and stand in line with two other, 200 other, well, 2,000 other fools. You know, I'm waiting and waiting for hours. And I'm saying, you know what, I don't even care if I go, why am I standing in line here? And just as I'm about to leave, a representative from WIPO Canada was going up and down the lines. Is there a Cam Connor here? Is there a Cam Connor? So I quickly identified myself and they pulled me out of line and brought me into uh, where you do the audition. And uh, what I had going for me is, you know, I played in the NHL, then the World Hockey, as we're going to talk about. And, uh, you know, when you see Edmonton Oilers or Montreal Canadiens uh, and Rangers, especially the two Canadian teams when it's Wipeout Canada, that holds a little bit of water. So at the end of the day, I was invited to participate in this uh, Wipeout Canada which was held in Buenos Aires, Argentina. For those of you who don't know where that is, it's the bottom of South America, and it is so friggin' far away that I got 15,000 air miles to get there and back. So that'll tell you alone how far away that is. And so the, the topic of the episode that you were participating on was the sports all-stars. So talk about that and who you were competing against. Well, first of all, I was 56 years old when I participated, and I'm overweight. You know, not as overweight as some guys, but, you know, I got some extra pounds on me. I wasn't in shape. And they have 20 guys within our group, the athletic division, competing for $50,000 running through this obstacle course that punches you and makes you wipe out and 
fall in water, fall in mud, so on and so forth. So out of the 20 guys, they had, there was a bull rider, there was an ex-CFL football player, and there were approximately 11 Olympic athletes. And so six months earlier, they had the Winter Olympics, and I had to compete against 11 of these athletes in my division. If these guys never even, and there were some ladies, if they never even worked out, they'd be in better shape than me. So, I mean, I knew I didn't really have a chance to to win this $50,000. But, you know, your fire is burning, and, and I'm willing to compete, and maybe I would have got lucky. You know, it wasn't to be, but I got to uh, spend seven days in Argentina. I would never have been there before. I got to meet a couple really nice people. And, and since you brought up Argentina, why don't you talk about the one scam that happened to someone that was competing with you? Well, what they told us, number one, when you get to Buenos Aires, they said, you know, it's a little dangerous here. So when you go out, make sure you go in groups of 10 when you go out. And number two, watch out for pickpocketers. Well, I haven't been one, like, remember I told you I used to hang out with Roddy Piper and so we didn't really always follow rules. My dad always taught us in our family, use your own brain. So I knew I could take care of myself. Uh, and, you know, Buenos Aires, if worst come to worst, you know, okay, if somebody had a gun or a weapon, that's a different story. So it would be pretty well myself, the CFL player, and the bull rider. The three of us, we would just go out on our own and explore. But one time the CFL football player and myself were walking down the street. Somebody bumped into him and then excused themselves and then they, as they walked away what they actually did is they sprayed something on her shoulder that looked like bird poop and then they said oh sir look at this on your shoulder and then they start trying to wipe it off at first we didn't really understand what's happening but all of a sudden the spidey senses kicked in and we we figured okay something's up here and sure enough they were trying to pull his wallet out of his back pocket and, you know, when we caught on, they quickly ran across the street. You know, I, I love Buenos Aires, but you got to be on your toes when you go to some of these foreign cities. Okay, so then you're ready for Wipeout. And what was the process like? You got to see what the, I don't know what they call it, the court, the maze? The, yeah, the course. There's the a course. course. The course looks like. What were you thinking? Well, again, you know, if I was in my prime, I knew that if this thing was above board, we, I would do very well, represent myself in my sport, but again, being the oldest guy ever to compete in a wipeout, I just kept my fingers crossed that I wouldn't make a fool of myself. So they let you take a look at the course, and then all the competitors, they put you in this tent. You're not allowed to watch anybody else do the course. You go in there, so who would they call first? I got to be the first one. So I'm standing at the top of this course, and I'm looking down, and I got to run down this ramp, and then I got to get on a log that's laying in the water. And then you got to do like a lumberjack and get the thing moving and take it to the far end and jump off. And I'm looking from up there, the sun's shining, and I can see that the log is reflecting back at me. And I'm thinking, well, why is the, a log reflecting? So I said, well, how come it's... Oh, he said, oh, I don't know why. Well, I know why. I don't think they really wanted me to do too well because... Being the first guy, I ran down there, jumped on the log, and they filled it up with Vaseline. So, of course, I'm going to wipe out right away. And then, you know, if you were some of the later people to do the log, well, a lot of that uh, Vaseline is rubbed off and you got a better chance. But it was pretty interesting, though. And I, and I do 
The only thing I thought was pretty funny, okay, so I, I do that, the course, and you don't even know your time, and, and it's it to me it seems a little bit rigged. There was ways that they could rig this thing. You know, I'm not going to win it anyways, but I was thinking of some other people, like that bull rider. I think he got a little railroaded, but that's another story. But it was pretty funny. You know, they interview everybody throughout the course of time that you're there. And they got a good-looking lady interviewing you, so it's my turn, and I'm up, and she's interviewing me, and I'm wearing a Montreal Canadian jersey, and they want you to act a little goofy and wear goofy shit. So, so I had this helmet on, and it was kind of a goofy-looking old helmet that, that I found. Uh, that didn't really fit right. Well, it didn't fit right. It was missing a few parts, but that's what they wanted, and they... They asked me to act kind of goofy, and you know I'm not going to do that. I don't. I don't really care, so I, I wouldn't play the part that they wanted me to. But it was kind of funny because when they do, you know, they'll they told you they let you know when they edit everything and it's going to air on TV. So it's kind of interesting to watch yourself on TV and see what they put in and what they don't put in. So they only had about three or four of the people out of the twenty the, that they showed the interview, and I was one of them. But now I know why. As the lady, and I mentioned she's a good-looking lady, a nice lady, talking to you, and you're giving her answers and replying to her questions. What I didn't know I was doing was, as, as she was talking to me, I was scratching myself. And until my wife and I were watching this when it first aired, and she says, what are you doing? I said, well, I didn't know I was doing that. Of course, you know, they're going to get as much mileage out of that as they can. So the people that are broadcasting this are drawing an arrow on the screen, pointing to me, scratching myself. And uh, obviously, uh, when I get back to work and other people have worked at work and seen this, they thought it was pretty funny, and they chirped me for about two weeks about me scratching. I think that is... Uh, you can find that on YouTube or somewhere. So in the end, you you didn't really make it too far uh, on the course, but it sounds like you had fun. You got a free yeah. trip. You got to meet some yeah. interesting people, and it's a new adventure that we got you into. Yeah, well, it, uh, it, it was a new adventure, and again, uh, I'm glad I went. Only 10 people out of 20 proceeded after the first day, so I wasn't one of the 10. But that's the way it goes. So we have another question, and I should mention that if you have any questions, you can send a tweet to my dad at CamConnorNHL, or you can send an email to both of us at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. So this question is from Clarence, and he has a, a doozy of a question that if you knew the answer to this formula, you would be rich, but he wants to know, how do you make the NHL? <laughs> or at least, do you have any advice? So... I might have mentioned in the past, We this is the 11th podcast, so I'm not sure exactly what I've said over the previous 10. But there is no formula to make in the NHL. I've mentioned in the past that there have been plenty of hockey players that I've played with and against over the years, starting when you were younger, right up through junior, that were better hockey players than me. And in my opinion, you hear the phrase natural ability. They had natural ability. They didn't really have to practice. But boy, when they got in the game, were they ever good? And for myself, I don't believe I had natural ability. But I was willing to work harder and pay any price. I, I never said I, I have to make it the NHL. That was my goal. I just wanted to be one of the better guys in the team. So I was willing to work hard 
to try to be one of the better guys in my team. And then every year I just got better and better and stronger and stronger and moved up in leagues and had some success. And as far as, you know, the only thing I could say, you've heard it before. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Hard work. I was at the outdoor rinks uh, probably daily, may not be exaggerating, whether you have to shovel the ice before you got on. Coldest days of the year in Winnipeg. I just love skating so much. and I just wanted to be a better hockey player. Plus, I had a love for the passion for the game. And so I put the time in. I think, you know, even if you have a passion for the game or whatever sport, and you put in the time and you work hard, that still doesn't mean you're going to make it. There are so many factors in there that come into play. For example, when I'm, you know, my first years in junior, whether it was Manitoba Junior League or Western Hockey League, I had coaches that just wouldn't put me in the ice unless I got rough out there. And I had the right coach at the age of 19, when you do get drafted, who recognized that I should be getting a regular shift. He played me regular, and I came up big, and I had a wonderful year. So there's so many factors that are working for you and against you. But I think if I could sum this up, you got to have a passion to work hard. And to if you just do what everybody else does, you'll be just as good as them. You got to be prepared to work harder than the guy beside you. That's a good starting point, I think. And I think you just have to love it because I looked up how many players have actually played in the NHL, and it's somewhere between six and seven thousand. So if you think about what the odds are of actually making professional hockey, it's not great, right? So you have to do it just to love it and see what happens. So we have one last question, and it's from Margaret from Dallas. And this actually goes along with uh, the WHA and the topic for today. She asks if you remember the blue WHA hockey pucks. Well, I do. I do. I know. I don't remember if they were blue or red or maybe there was multicolors. But the world hockey was always trying to distinguish itself. Maybe change some rules that the NHL had. Or like they allowed... When the, when the NHL said you could only have a half-inch curve, the WHA, the World Hockey Association, said you could have an inch and a half, two-inch curve. We don't care. And so they were always trying something to distinguish themselves. And so they tried with the pucks, and they put in different pucks um, into play. But I think if I got this correct, the blue and the red pucks, they just didn't show up on TV that well, and the goalies I don't think could follow them as well. So it was an experiment that they tried, but at the end of the day, they found out that uh, there's a reason they have black pucks. And apparently these blue blue pucks are hard to find and are actually valuable if you have one. So do you have a blue puck in your collection, Dad? No, I don't. Uh, I have have a few interesting sticks and I got a, a different type of puck, but no, I don't, I don't have that. Okay. So why don't we talk about the WHA and your time in that league? And I know we talked a little bit about how you had the choice to play for Montreal Canadians in the NHL and you actually chose the WHA and they were known as the NHL's rival league. So why don't you talk a little bit about what the WHA was for those people listening that have never heard of it? 
you, you'll, you'll hear the WHA, which stands for World Hockey Association, just like NHL stands for National Hockey League. So this new league came in in 1972. I haven't looked up the stats. I'm going to just guess that maybe there was eight teams, maybe more, but I'll say eight. That first started near in L.A. in different cities, and uh, within a year or two, you know, teams folded and so on and so forth. I joined in 1974, and what the World Hockey really was, it was, my understanding is, is that there was people with a lot of money that wanted to put franchises from their various cities and get them into the National Hockey League, and the NHL wasn't interested uh, in expanding to these cities, so they said, we'll form, form our own league. You know, just like today, they have the KHL, which is a European rival to the National Hockey League. Most of the players in the KHL would rather play in the NHL. They're not all good enough to play. So there's a league and a place for them to play. The World Hockey Association, it probably came about at the right time. Back in the day, the, the NHL teams, they were uh, pretty aggressive. The management, you don't play for them, you're not playing anywhere. And they would tell you what you're making. You had no bargaining choices. And they were really underpaid back in the day. Uh, today, you know, obviously it's swung the other way that maybe the players are, I don't like to say overpaid, but, you know, they make a very good dollar, and you can't treat the players the same way they used to treat them in the NHL, yelling and screaming and threatening. That's how it was, and today it seems like everybody gets along a lot more, uh, more on a level playing field. With the World Hockey Association, you know, I mean, coming from Winnipeg, I obviously knew about the World Hockey Association because the Winnipeg Jets had a team. And it really wasn't until I got drafted at 19 and I was in an airport one day and the owner of the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey, his name was Benny Hatskin. And I knew who Benny was. I was, I was, like I said, I was in the airport and I saw Benny and I went over and talked to him and identified myself and and I had mentioned, you know, I was uh, drafted by both leagues. And he, I can't say he talked me into it, but he answered a lot of my questions. I said, you know, I have a chance to go to WHA or to NHL. And he said, this is a viable league. It's going to be around a long time. we got a lot of money. And at 19 years old, I was pretty naive. And, you know, after my conversation with Benny Hatskin, I kind of thought a lot more serious about going to the World Hockey up until then, it was probably the only thing in my mind was I'll go to the National League because that's all I ever knew. So the World Hockey, it came around just at the right time. It increased players' salaries, and so it helped a lot of families out. It offered more jobs for a lot of hockey players. The problem with, as I found out by going to the World Hockey, the problem was is that the players that were on these teams, if you had a few bucks you know, as an owner, you could go after an NHL marquee player and get him on your franchise and see if that would help draw, you know, the attendance to your games. But for the most part, the World Hockey had really young, good talent, or really, I don't the word isn't washed up, but players that were fringe players that probably weren't playing in the NHL or had their a year or two at the very most uh, within the World Hockey or within the NHL, and they were in the minors. 
and they wouldn't cost the new league a lot of money. And so as a young player, when you go to the NHL, you've got some world-class hockey players on your team, young, old, in the middle, that you can learn from. But when you went to the World Hockey Association, for the most part, you didn't have those type of players that you would follow into battle on your team. And you you didn't learn nearly as much. And although the World Hockey had some good coaches, they also had some coaches that had no business being in there. Basically, that was the World Hockey, in my mind. So apparently one of the selling points that the WHA had was that they could pay their players a lot more than what the NHL was offering. Did you find that to be true? It's just like in the National Hockey League. If you were a high draft choice, if you're dealing from strength, you're going to get a better paycheck. If you're just average and you're playing in the American League or the East Coast League and the World Hockey comes along, they don't have to pay you top dollar. If they just pay you more than you're making in the minors, you're happy to jump leagues for sure. So I don't think everybody benefited. I think it just prolonged some of the hockey players' careers. I had guys in my team that were older, and they were not very good. They are wonderful people, but we're talking hockey ability. They weren't very good. And if they didn't have the world hockey, they would have been out of hockey for sure. So an interesting stat is that it looks like 67 players actually jumped from the NHL to the WHA. And a lot of that was in part to Bobby Hall signing a really big contract. Yes, that's correct. And I got a question for you, Chris. Name me the one hockey player from the NHL, and I'll give you a little clue. He played on Boston Bruins. He was a good hockey player, and they paid him a gazillion dollars to jump leagues, and he went to the Philadelphia team. I don't remember what the World Hockey team was called. And and they actually gave him $1 million to leave the league. Would you know who that is? Or maybe that should be a question to the viewers. I actually have a guess, but we'll let we'll let the people listening have their, their yeah. guess. I'm sure mine's not even right, but um, they can give me a million dollars to leave the league and lead lead the league anytime they want. So going back to the the players that the WHA scouted for, I also read that this was the start of actively recruiting European players because the WHA would go into Europe and bring some players that the NHL that w- wasn't even on their radar. Well, that's so true. And, you you know, I've written down a lot of notes to uh, touch on. And just because you mentioned that, Chris, the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association, I think if you followed hockey, depending how old you are, in the mid-'70s, there was a team out of Winnipeg that was probably – without sitting here counting, but have an easy 12 or 14 players from Sweden on their team. They were here, the Swedes, uh, for sure, back in those days, they didn't play rock for tough style. They were finesse players, and that's where Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nielsen came in. There was some Swedes that played out of Toronto, but when you played the Winnipeg Jets, oh, you better, you better have your act together because those guys could skate, They changed the game of hockey, in my opinion. A lot of the teams back then were just rough and tough and 
in your face. The Flyers have been winning the Stanley Cup with their Broad Street bullies. The Jets were ahead of their time. They didn't have the tough guys on the team. They were a finesse team. And if you see the game today, which is a lot more skating and finesse hockey and not as much stick work, that's what the Winnipeg Jets were like. They were ahead of their time. And I believe that this is how the NHL is being played right now with some good skating talent, good stick handling ability. That's the Winnipeg Jets and the Swedes. So we'll talk about the couple teams that you played for in the WHA. But before we do, are there any memories or, or tidbits that you have from your time in the WHA? Well, I do. When you played in the WHA, again, this isn't an established league. They didn't draw as well as the NHL. And so they probably had, the owners had more money going out than coming in. And so the rule was, is when you fly into a visiting team's airport, that they would supply a bus for you to get to the hotel and to the rink. So in the WHA, I remember arriving in Chicago in different cities. You're supposed to be like a first class league. And there's a yellow school bus waiting for us every single time. So to me, that was a little embarrassing, getting on a yellow school bus. I remember when I was in grade two, going for swimming lessons from school, we'd get in a yellow school bus. So that was always pretty interesting. And also, some of the teams had more money than others, as it is today, even in the NHL. There are some teams that would come in when I was in Houston, for example, and you know players on other teams, and they come up and talk to you, and they've been on the road for a week or two weeks. Sometimes we were on the road for three weeks at a time, twice a year in the World Hockey Association. And they'd say, well, you know, we don't have much of a stick budget, so we're only allowed to use so many sticks and take so many sticks on the road with us. And we still got three more games on the road, and I don't have any more sticks. Can you give me some of your sticks? So we used to go in our dressing room and sneak out some sticks to help the other teams out because they didn't have a stick budget that was really, that really made any sense. Um, you know, that's your tool that you use as your stick. So we would have to help out the other teams just with things like that. One of the things that I've always heard about the WHA was that it was a really tough, tough league. Is that true? Chris, that is true. It goes back to... What I said, you know, had real young players or really old players and a few superstars. And I had said earlier today that Philadelphia Flyers is winning the Stanley Cup with their Broad Street Bullies, their rough, goony type of hockey. Playing in Phoenix, for example, there was a team. I'm, I'm part of the era where we used to have bench brawls. And for you people that follow hockey today, you may not even know or have ever seen a bench brawl. But that's where... There's some problems on the ice and both teams leave the bench and they are brawling against each other. 20 against 20 for the most part. And the refs, they just stand back and they let everybody burn themselves out. And after 20 or 30 minutes, then they'll get involved to start, you know, ejecting people off the ice. You'll never see that again, these bench brawls. In fact, you don't see even very many fights nowadays. But I remember... Back in the World Hockey Association, there was a team called Minnesota Fighting Saints. I've spoke about them before. And they had the core of their hockey team were basically the real guys from the movie Slapshot. And you've all seen what that was like. That's what those guys were like. They were tough. 
And there wasn't two or three of them. There was a ten of them that were crazy guys on the ice. So our team in Phoenix, we played in Phoenix against the Fighting Saints. In the warm-up, you could see in the warm-up, they brought up all the goons from their farm teams. Like, every one of them that's in Slapshot. And we said, well, this is going to be an interesting game. My roommate in Phoenix... Uh, was a fellow by the name of Barry Dean. He was a first-round draft choice in the NHL, chose to go to the World Hockey Association. And I have a lot of respect for Barry Dean, one of the finest guys around. He got in a fight on the ice with a guy named Paul Holgram, and I believe Paul is the president of the Flyers today. Paul was an American boy, a big boy. He played a physical game. He played, he was a good hockey player, he was well-rounded, but him and Barry started to fight, and my roommate was getting the worst of it, and so I'll never forget it, this is my roommate, so I had to get involved and help Barry out, I had just finished my shift, I was tired, so I'm not going to go over and sucker Paul Holgram, but what I did is I just jumped on him and knocked him over and I kind of covered his head so that Barry couldn't punch him if Barry was going after him. Well, that's all we needed to start a bench brawl. And as I'm on top of Holgram, we're wrestling and kind of fighting. And all of a sudden, somebody's grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and Paul Holgram and I let go. Now, I'm fighting a guy named Kurt Brackenberry. And if you look up his stats, Kurt was a fighter, stocky, always in shape and he loved to fight and he's fresh right off the bench I just had my shift and I I just was taking on Holgram so I'm tired and so Kurt Brackenberry and I we turn around and we go at it and it's a good first this is a bench brawl now so we have a good first fight and then we get each other over the penalty box and we're both leaning over the boards holding on each other and I'm huffing and puffing and he says to me you ready to go again I said not yet so he gave me another 30 seconds to catch my breath. And then we let go and went at it a second time. And then we held each other over the boards again. He says, you ready again? I said, yep. We let go and we fought a third time. And then after the third time, Kurt Brackenberry says to me, hey, Cam, why don't we fight somebody else? So I said, well, if you want to. So we let go. And, you know, I went and got another fight. And he went and got in some other fights. You know, there were some guys that got cut pretty good in these. They're just like a barroom brawl. Oh, it was, yeah, it was bad. And so, game kicked out a lot of players. The game finishes, and there's bumps and bruises and cuts and swollen eyes and broken nose. It's, It's crazy. And about within a week later, we had to go to play in their ring, the Minnesota Fighting Saints. So the fans obviously had read the, the, the summaries of the hockey game in Phoenix, it was sold out. And I think this uh, arena in St. Paul held it held about eighteen or 19,000 people. It was sold out to the rafters. And one thing that I realized is I read a program before the game. We're all nervous because we know we're in their rink now. We're going to be brawling. We know it. And I'm reading the program before the game, and they have in the Slapshot movie, they're called the Hansen Brothers. In reality, they're the Carlson Brothers. That's the real name. And they're all 6'3 and big boys. So I fought one guy named Jack Carlson before, and Jack, you know, I I, I beat him. It wasn't anything really one-sided, and I got him down, and I was on top of him. 
And I felt like I was riding a Brahma bull. I could feel the strength in this guy. And I remember telling myself, don't let this guy up. My God, he's strong. So, anyways, we had our fight. But I knew what he was all about. And I'm reading uh, the program before the game. And it's Jack Carlson talking about he's not afraid of anybody in the World Hockey Association. He said, the only guy that I'm afraid of, he says, is my brother, Jeff, he said, he's the toughest guy I know. I would never fight Jeff. So I go, oh, my God. I beat Jack, but uh, barely. And I, I hope he's not that much better because I'm going to get pounded tonight. So the first period we go out there, the Minnesota Fighting Saints are running. All our guys, including me, and I took it. They ran me. I took it. I was just going, how many periods we got left? We got to survive. After the, between the first and second, I had to do a little bit of a gut check. And I said to myself, you coward. You better stand up out there this next period. You know, this is not the way to play hockey. Be a man and stand up. So that was it. First shift, the three Carlson brothers are on the same line. And they're coming down the ice and everybody peels off and just picks up their winger. They're not getting too involved in our team. And I was in my own end, and I come run. I charged him from my end, and I hit Jeff Carlson at center ice as hard as I could with a body check. And as he's flying backwards in the air, he's throwing his gloves off. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to get shaken. But we square off, and the fans wanted to see that. So we're at center ice. We square off. I've said before, when you're scared, you can fight. And so... I didn't think it was all reaction when I got in the fight. So we square off, and then Carlson comes at me. Boom, boom, boom. I hit him three in a row, and I knocked him right on his back. And I'm saying to myself, well, I might have got lucky there. I'm thinking he's a pretty tough guy. I don't know why I knocked him down so quick. Well, he's like a Tasmanian devil. He gets up, and he's trying to throw the linesman who's holding him back and trying to get at me, and I'm saying... Good. They're not letting them fight me. I'm happy about that. And then the referee, his name was Bill Friday. He was quite the character. He says, all right, Carlson, you want to fight Connors? And Bill Friday has seen me fight, so I guess he thought I could hold my own. So he says, all right, Carlson, you want to fight Connors again? Let him go. And I'm thinking, don't let him go. What are you guys doing? Well, we square off again at center ice. And we got our fists up and we're kind of you know, getting ready to go at it again. And then Jeff Carlson, I don't know why, he just put his fist down and skied to the penalty box. And all of a sudden, I felt so much better. And then the rest of the second period and the third period, I played my aggressive style. And that rough housing that they brought to the first period, that slowed right down. And we ended up tying them in their own rink. So that was what the world hockey was with bench brawls. And again, you don't see those. Those are pretty scary. It's absolutely no control on the ice. And I believe I've probably been involved in two or three of those. You're just not fun to be part of. So that's what I remember about, you know, the WHA and how, how aggressive that kind of hockey was. Well, that definitely answers the question of if it was a, a tough league. And we actually have hit the 40-minute mark. So... We are, and that's a great story to end part one of the WHA on. And I know you'll have stories about some of the actual teams that you played for. And a really interesting bit for part two will be your time with Gordy Howe and playing with his brothers. So there's a lot that we can, I mean, his son, playing with his sons. 
Did he have brothers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting if they were good hockey players. I don't know. Playing with his sons. So we'll leave it here. And until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam.